This is very interesting. Found out this piece of information via Twitter from Yaakov, who was in the first service, Yaakov Petcher, that, you know, right now the Hamilton, the Broadway musical is all the rage, okay? And, and of course, the man who killed um, Alexander Hamilton was Aaron Burr, okay? Now, do you know who Jonathan Edwards is, the greatest theologian in the history of the United States? Okay? Jonathan Edwards was the grandfather of Aaron Burr. Did you know this? Hey, I knew it but forgot it. Thank goodness for Twitter. Okay, it reminded me, okay? And I get it's got to be true if it's on Twitter. Nonetheless, don't hate on it too much because in the New Testament, we have all these meaty long letters like Romans and Corinthians and, you know, the Gospels. But we also have our own version of a, of a tweet, so to speak, a 25 short verses packed into this one itty-bitty letter called Philemon, somewhere right around Hebrews and James. You might have to consult your index in your Bible to, to find it. And we're spending three weeks in this little book. And because it's part of God's Word, we know that it's true, it's relevant, it's life-giving for us, regardless of how short it is. And if you weren't with us, or even if you were, just a brief run-up, a little review as to what this book is all about, what's going on in the context of this letter from Paul to Philemon. Ten years prior to the writing of this letter, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus and had planted that church there. And part of his ministry, was, in terms of people who were converted, was a man named Philemon, who had come from a little town called Colossae and journeyed about 30 miles away to Ephesus. He was converted as a part of Paul's ministry. So, so imagine we are now in Ephesus. What would be the equivalent Colossae for us? Perry, Crawfordville, okay, something like that, okay, Thomasville, um, and so, so this, was, this, was, this was Philemon. Philemon went back from, his home, from, from Ephesus and planted this church in Colossae. Uh, Philemon was a wealthy man, had many servants and slaves. We're going to come to that in just a second. And he and this church met in his home. So they did not have church buildings then. They couldn't meet in the synagogues or the temple, obviously. So, so people met in the wealthy, in wealthy people's houses or homes and, and so Philemon housed the church in Colossae. There was a man who was one of Philemon's slaves named Onesimus. And Onesimus, six or eight years prior to this, had run away. And he had stolen some property. And he went as far from Colossae as humanly possible. Okay? He went to the, the equivalent of New York City. I mean, he, he, 1,200 miles away, went to Rome, and the reason he went to Rome is that there was 850,000 people that lived there. It was a place to hide out. It was a place to be obscure and anonymous, but while he was there, he coincidentally, and we'll talk more about that too, ran into whom? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a uh, he was under house arrest, and he was able to receive guests and visitors. And we're not exactly sure how, out of 850,000 people, Onesimus found Paul, and Paul found Onesimus. But what we do know is that Onesimus was converted under Paul's ministry. And he went from being slave to kind of Paul's right-hand man. And we see from this letter that, that Paul says, you know, Onesimus, you used to be useless, but you are incredibly useful now. You, in, in fact, he calls Onesimus his own, like, he, I love him like he's my own son. 
He, he's, he's a brother in Christ. And so he writes, so Paul writes this letter to Philemon, asking Philemon to release Onesimus from his obligations. He says, Ones, he says Philemon, Onesimus is your brother in Christ. Onesimus, he is, uh, this man is so dear to my heart, Philemon. Let him go. I'll repay his debts. He's, I'm his spiritual father. He's my child. But there was one catch. When he, sent, when he sent this letter, guess who had to carry this letter back? Onesimus, okay? And so we're like, what in the world is that all about? Why didn't Paul just give the pastoral apostolic dictate? We'll talk about that in a second. But as we, as we look into this passage and really look at the contours of the way Paul saw the gospel shape relationships in the body of Christ, one of the things I, I want to just briefly as a kind of excursus address is this issue of slavery. Because here in the 21st century, 2,100 years later, it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around what is going on. Why, you know, how do we make sense of this as, as Christians? And so, so one of the things that we have to remember is that first century slavery was more akin to um, being an indentured servant than it would be what we find in our own um, American history, which was slavery based upon racial dynamics. It doesn't mean that it was, a, it, was a, it was a great institution to be a part of, but 65, there were 65 million slaves as part of the Roman Empire. And, and, one, and we have to ask the question, why, why, why doesn't Paul just advocate for the overflow of save, slavery right here and right there? Well, one is not only was slavery much different, but we have to remember that when there were big slave uprisings, um, Rome did not look kindly upon that. If you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, which is about a slave uprising, what did Rome do to slave uprisings? They crushed them ruthlessly. There was no democracy. There was no political structure to affect change in that way. So Paul does something a little more subversive. He begins to lay the theological groundwork which has served the church now for the last 2,100 years because wherever Christians go, slavery goes bye-bye. Okay? Now, we have our own stain of slavery, but when we think about the abolitionist movement, when we think about um, uh, the people at the forefront of eradicating slavery all over the world, it has been primarily through Christian witness and part of that is because Paul lays the theological groundwork in this text for it. Think about all the things that he says that are just profoundly, just deeply theological. He was like, Philemon, Onesimus, I mean, he was your bondservant, but like he's your brother in Christ now. Okay, you know, you know Philemon, um, you receive Onesimus in the way that you would receive me as an apostle, as a brother. These were radical revolutionary statements. Paul's immediate concern here is the here and now, and it's our concern too. How does the gospel transform the way that we relate to one another in the body of Christ? And Paul's going to take, we looked at one theme last week with Pastor Dave, it's about baggage and how when God brings people into our lives like Onesimus's, did I say that right? Onesimai, okay, plural, whatever, that, that, you know, all their problems don't just go away. We get the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, and, 
and we have to see people through the eyes of the gospel and what an opportunity to serve them. Paul is going to talk to us this morning, for Oaks, about peacemaking. Peacemaking. How, how, how does peace shape our relationships with one another? And, and, and as we get into the text, let me ask you this question. Look in the mirror and ask yourself this hard, this hard, hard question here. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? And you may say, Pastor Paul, I don't know what you mean. To which I would say, yeah, I think you do. <laughs> I think you do. Do people feel closer to God? Do people feel more closely connected to one another after you've been there? After you've connected? After you've related? Or do you sort of spread relational drama wherever you go? Okay, we, we all grew up on peanuts, right? So, so, so Pigpen would walk around and leaving a trail of what? Dirt, okay? That's why they called him Pigpen, right? And, and for some of us, let's be honest, or some people, when they walk around, when they move around from relationship, relationship, or tribe to tribe, relational carnage just sort of follows them wherever they go. Are you a peacemaker? Maybe relational carnage doesn't follow you, but are you someone who sees yourself as an active instrument of change in people's lives? You see, you can be just as much of a non-peacemaker by your silence, right, as you can be by what you say. Are you someone who facilitates gospel peace and harmony in your relationships? Am I that kind of person? That's what Paul wants to deal with us on. We're going to be looking at a portion of Philemon starting in verse 8, going down to verse 16. So let's read together. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, he's writing to Philemon, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. Listen to this. Sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you." both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, get us in touch with something that, to be honest with you, we probably just don't want to get in touch with this morning. The last thing maybe some of us want to think about is the status of our relationships and the status of peace in our lives because we know this makes a claim and this means hardship for some of us. It means engagement. It means prayer. It means opening our hearts back up to you. But Lord, we know, we know that you say, 
blessed, blessed are the peacemakers. Lord, we want to, to be a peacemaker because, Lord, you've made peace with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask him now to guide us in this time. In his name, amen. Three points about peacemaking that I want to draw your attention to from this text. And the first one is this. Peacemaking is definitional. Now, I, tried, I was going to be really cute and say peacemaking is ontological, but I knew it might confuse the UF graduates. Okay, so, so what, what we mean by, come on, all right, by definition, okay, means to consist of. If you are a Christian, a peace, peacemaking is not merely what you do. A peacemaker is fundamentally who you are. We have to understand that, that this idea of making peace is endemic to our Christian nature and heart. You cannot not be, if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, a peacemaker. It's, it's, it's your identity. Look at Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you identify yourself fundamentally, it's not all you are, but it, it's, 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 a, it's a significant portion of your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am a peacemaker. Thus, I need to be one who actively makes and initiates and facilitates peace with other people. Paul, the apostle, he modeled this, uh, I mean, when we look at this story, it's just unbelievable. So let's think about this for a second. Paul is in prison. Paul has a lot on his plate. He's about to appear before Caesar and answer for his life. Paul is writing half of the New Testament from prison. He's writing Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians, and he is entertaining people he has a whole compadre of gospel workers and helpers, and he's writing letters and giving instructions and basically running the New Testament church from his household arrest. Paul's got a lot going on. And see, it's very easy for us to put peacemaking to an auxiliary secondary role in our lives because it just doesn't seem that urgent. It just doesn't seem that important. That thing will deal with itself. That thing will just go away. That thing will deal with it Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. And we'll circle back around the next year to, to, to ignore it then as well. Guys, that's not Paul's position. Peacemaking is so important to Paul, and he wants it to be so important to us, that he stops everything that he's doing and, and writes a letter that is now part of our 66 books of the Bible, and it is about this one central theme. This whole letter, in fact, is, a, is, is such a loud statement that you and I as Christians can never be passive about relationships. We can never be entrenched about conflict or the lack of peace in our relationships. There is an urgency that Paul exhibits here that, that he tells us must characterize 
the way we view our relationships and whether there is peace and harmony and reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, I don't care who you are, and I think this is, this is probably true for every single one of us in here, 99% of us. If you are human, there are most likely relationships in your orb or sphere where you are not at peace with someone. Okay, I, I think I'm saying that probably characterizes most of us. It might be an overt conflict. You might be estranged. You might be at odds. You might be in a legal suit. You might, you might be in a defamation suit. You, you might be um, in a divorce situation. There, your best friend could have stabbed you in the back, whatever the case is. Or, or maybe you are just at some sort of covert conflict, sort of a relational detente. You know what that word detente means? It's a Cold War term. The, the, the United States and the Soviet Union, they were at odds for decades, and they slowly begin to talk, and it, detente referred to this idea of a thaw in relationships. But, but that's no relationship, right? That's just each side looking at the, uh, each other very suspicious, very wary. Let's be honest, that can characterize a lot of our relationships even in the body of Christ. We're not having overt hostility here but, buddy, we're, we're uneasy. I see, do, when people see you coming, do they go over to the other side of the sidewalk, so to speak? Or do you do that for some? See, Paul is concerned about all that. But more importantly, Jesus is concerned for all that. And here's the question for us. When we think about the places in our life where there is not peace, are you okay with it? Am I okay with it? Even if you feel like before God, I've done everything I can do to live at peace with this person. I've done everything I can do to resolve this conflict. Is there still a part of your heart that aches for God's peace there? You know, the in the prodigal son, the father is standing out by the road and his younger son has taken his money, gone to the distant country, squandering it on prostitutes and gambling. Now, understand, the father had done everything he could to live at peace with that young man. And he did not go tromping off to the foreign land to fetch his son. But what did he do? Every day, stayed out by the road, looking out, praying, expectant, hopeful, does that characterize your relationship with those who you might be in conflict with? Praying, trusting, hoping for God's best in that. This has been an interesting week in the realm of peacemaking for, for, for Susan and myself. We had a relationship with, a, with some friends that predates Four Oaks. This is way, way back in the day, two decades. And we had a conflict with, with these friends. And before God, we have felt that we have done what we can do to bridge that gap. We, have, we had initiated, we had pursued, we had sought counsel, we had all of those sorts of things, but this, this group of friends did not want to have relationship with us. Until this week came on our grid in a providential way a small, small window 
that God has given us potentially to re-engage them. But here's what I want you to, to get from this. What I realized for myself as this window opened is that I had kind of grown okay with this. I had grown a little callous. I had grown a little disinterested. I had just, there was a, a covering that had made its way around my heart where I had stopped hoping. I had stopped praying. I had stopped waiting expectantly. Guys, does your, does your heart beat for restoration and for peace, even if you've done everything to do it? And that's not to even to address all the situations where God is calling us to be a peacemaker in a more active way. And, and what does that look like? Because I want to say there's, right now there's a difference between being a peacemaker or peacemaking and being a peacekeeper. Okay? Those are two totally different things. Just in the news this week, we read about how North and South Korea, who've been at conflict now for almost 70 years, okay? there's an armistice in place, a ceasefire, but their navies were still skirmishing with one another, shooting over the border. We have, you, we have troops stationed in, in Seoul, and, and they are, they're part of the, the, the border patrol to keep the peace and all those sorts of things. There has not been a conflict in that place in 70 years. But let's not mistake that for peace. Okay, that is not peace. Those people are not making peace they are keeping the peace. What would a true peacemaker do in that context? Well, they might not defend, but actually walk across the demilitarized zone, right? And begin to engage and talk and work out problems. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that's absurd. They, they might get hurt. Now you understand, right? Now you understand, that this peacemaking business is dangerous stuff. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. Okay? Another thing that peacemaking is not, it's not peace faking. Guys, do you have relationships in your life where on the surface everything is a-okay, but underneath what? There's just a cauldron of dysfunction. There's just an, an undercurrent of of, you know, we're not going there, we're not addressing that, we're going to act like that's not happening, and, you know, stick fingers in ears, and, a little, you know, over and over again, you know, just, I want to go home, I want to go home, if I just ignore it long enough, it'll disappear. By the way, a lot of marriages are in that place. One spouse doesn't want to address things with the other because they're afraid they'll be upset, they're afraid there'll be conflict, or vice versa, and it's a codependent kind of relationship, and everybody just exists on this level, just remember, and Paul would tell us this from Philemon, there cannot be authentic peace. There cannot be authentic relationship apart from truth. Apart from truth. So, so peacekeeping, peacemaking are not true, true demonstrations of peace. And obviously, there are the peace breakers. Okay? Are you the person, and, which is not peacemaking either, you may think by exerting your will and authority upon people that you're keeping the peace, but you are not. Are you, when people see your email or your text, do they go, uh-oh, okay? Are you that, are you that guy? 
Are you that woman where it's like, oh no, I know this person is bringing the drama. I know this person is introducing the funk. Oh my goodness. Because none of those things are peace. Peace seeks out. Peace seeks God's best. Peace, yo yes, operates in truth. Peace operates in authenticity. Peace doesn't seek to protect, to be self-protective. Peace seeks the good of the other person and the witness that comes from a reconciled relationship in the body of Christ. We are called to be peacemakers, and here's why. Jesus Christ is the supreme peacemaker. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He made peace for us on the cross. If you think being a peacemaker is a massive inconvenience to your life, and can I, truth in advertising, can I say something? Being a peacemaker is a bunch of trouble, (laughs) okay? It is hard. You've got phone calls and coffees and listening. You may actually have to listen to someone to have peace. Imagine, okay? You may actually have to partition off part of your schedule. Unbelievable, okay? To have peace with someone. It will place demands on you. It will make claims on your life. But whatever those claims are, and they're laughable for the 21st century Christian, aren't they? They're laughable, Nothing compared to the claims they made on the Son of God who had no place to rest his head, had no place to call his home, wandered the earth for 33 years and died a violent, despicable death for this reason, to make peace with you and me. Be a peacemaker. Second point, roll through these last two a little faster. Peacemaking is familial, okay? And and here we're getting at this idea that peace is never merely an internal psychological construct. You know, we're we're in an age where I have peace with that decision. I have peace about that thing. And and, and that can mean a whole bunch of different things, but it almost always never has the other person in view. I have peace doesn't mean that there isn't peace. Peace always has a reference point. Look in verse 10. Look at how Paul plays on this with Philemon. He says, Philemon, I appeal to you, my child, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. See, peace makes a claim on our relationships as part of the family of God. We can never be indifferent about them. We can never be okay um, in the presence of unresolved situations. We may have done everything we can do, but we have to be hoping, praying, and and seeking how this makes a claim on our lives. And let's think for a second what Paul was really asking Onesimus and Philemon to do. I want us to think about this for a second. Here is Onesimus. He's a brother in Christ. He is no longer a slave. He is Paul's right-hand man. He's escaped the bondage of slavery. And now Paul is saying, listen, Philemon, I mean, listen, Onesimus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this letter, and I want you to take it back to Philemon, and I want you to repent. Think about that. I want you to say, I'm sorry. I want you to say, I've wronged you. 
I want you to submit yourself to his mercy. Now, we understand Paul makes a plea for Onesimus. And by the way, we do believe that Philemon heeded this call because Onesimus, according to church history, goes on to become the pastor of Ephesus after Timothy. So that's, that's what church history tells us. But he's asking Onesimus to take a 1,200-mile journey to inconvenience himself in every way. Guys, you understand that legally Philemon could have executed Onesimus when Onesimus showed up. Legally could have executed him. Legally could have ostracized him. Legally could have had parts of his body taken off as punishment to make sure he didn't escape again. And, And Paul says, Onesimus... Living at peace is such an important thing to God. I'm sending you back. And listen to what this means for Philemon. Listen to the claim this makes on him. He says, Philemon, here's what I want you to do. I know you have a lot invested in Onesimus. I know you paid a price. His work is worth something to you. He's broken a covenant. He's broken a contract. Remember, a lot of times, slavery in the first century world was not forced, coercive slavery. A lot of times... People indentured themselves as part of a covenant and contract to do work so that they could be cared for as part of a household. And so Philemon had a legal claim, a right claim. And here's what Paul says. Philemon, I want you to welcome him back as a brother. Philemon, I want you to release him. Philemon, I want you to forgive his debt. I mean, this is all kind of tongue-in-cheek. Paul's like, you know, I'll pay you back, Philemon, okay? (laughs) But... Before you ask me that for that payment, just remember, you owe me your very life. Okay, thanks, Paul. Right? Okay, what is Philemon really, what, what is Paul really saying? Philemon, take it on the chin. Guys, there's always a cost for making peace. Always. Always a cost. You may have to absorb things, absorb wrongs, absorb misunderstandings. I'm not talking about glossing over the truth. But in order to live at peace with someone, biblically, you may have to absorb the wrong that's been committed against you and to forgive them. And Paul is saying, Philemon, forgive your brother. And if we think about, I mean, guys, Paul could have just written a letter and sent it by however they sent letters, okay? And just said, here's the deal. Here's the deal, Philemon. I'm an apostle, I need Onesimus. It's the right thing to do. Be done with it. But yet he doesn't. Isn't that interesting? If this, if if the extent to which Paul is seeking peace between Philemon and Onesimus seems excessive to you, it seems like an excessive hardship, it seems, let's be honest, crazy. This seems absolutely crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's because Paul puts a higher premium on peacekeeping than we do, or peacemaking. Maybe, maybe, peacemaking doesn't embody our heart and call in the way Jesus calls us to embody it. Let me just say this very clearly, if you haven't gotten the point yet. Peacemaking is very important to God. So important, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. So if the, we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. Here's what Paul says. I mean, here's what Jesus says. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then, then come offer your gift. Jesus is using some hyperbole to say this. Do you and I, are our lives, our hearts, our spirits, are they characterized by an urgency, by a desire to go the distance with someone? to do everything possible, is as far as it's up to me, Paul says in Romans 12, live at peace with all men. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul makes an appeal to Philemon versus a command. This is the only letter in the New Testament that Paul does not address as an apostle. Isn't that interesting? Because he's not wielding the apostolic stick. He's not being the heavy. He is making an appeal. Look at verse 8. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to what? Appeal to you. Verse 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. See, Paul's reminding us of something. If it's coerced, it's not real peace. It's not real peace. So, Susan and I, we have in our house, we have the black couch room and the red couch room. Don't even ask, okay? Anyway, it's a sight to behold. So, so Susan and I might be in the black couch room, and we hear some chaos, okay? We hear the cauldron of dysfunction cranking up in the red couch room. And there is some lack of peace that is going on in there. And it's usually like mission critical. Somebody's breathing too loud, okay? There's chewing, okay? Somebody's snapping their fingers. I mean, like, I'm talking the heavy duty of stuff. And at that point, okay, I can, there's a way to fix that, right? What could I do? Yell, threaten, manipulate, okay, hold the, 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 the fear of punishment over their heads. Guys, there's a lot of ways that we can deal with conflict, right? We can exert our will. We can threaten. We can manipulate. We can, or I can just ignore it, right? It'll go away. Or by the time Susan gets back in the room, okay, she can deal with it, okay, whatever the case may be. But guys, that's not making the peace You see, outwardly there might be peace, meaning there's the cessation of conflict. But spiritually and inwardly, there's no change. There's still resentment. There's still bitterness. Hearts remain untouched. And just think about how that applies here at the church family. Folks, don't be content with surface peace. It's not peace. Don't try to manage the conflict in your life. God calls us to deal with it, to engage it. Be on the lookout as part of this church family. How can I be a facilitator of peace? You know, oftentimes it's not the person who's causing the drama that's introducing the drama and the conflict. Guys, you can be a very active, a very passive but active participant. Do you know what I mean? You hear something from someone and bump, 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 bump. And by your silence, by your silence, you're failing to be a peacemaker. 
By your silence, you're letting go something that was said that was hurtful, destructive, and conflict-inducing because you just don't want to go there. Because part of the glory of the Gospel is that it unites us as a family of God where peacemaking is now given to all of us. See, it's not just the responsibility of the fellowship group leader or the pastor or the elder or the Sunday school teacher. Um, Guys, this is the responsibility of all of us as the body of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Last point and we're done. Go through this one quickly. Peacemaking is providential. Peacemaking is providential. I didn't bring it here, Major Bhopal. I, I carry in my pocket the greatest evangelistic tool, social icebreaker known to man, and it is not the four spiritual laws. Okay? It is my C3PO R2D2 Disney credit card. Okay? I kid you not. Okay? When I break that out, okay, I probably get four to five comments about that card every time I use it. And if you're a Star Wars hater, yeah, okay, on you, all right, okay, love this thing. As you know from the last movie where, where Star Wars reengaged itself with society and culture, that, that movie has, has been criticized for the un, and this is funny, we're talking about a sci-fi movie, okay, there's, Pastor, there's an unreasonable number of coincidences in that movie, okay, like on the planet, and there's the lady, and then there's the guy, and the stormtrooper, and the Millennium Falcon, I mean, how, that's just, that, that could never happen. Okay, uh, thanks. Thank you. That was, that was helpful and lightning. As, let me tell you something. Star Wars, in terms of coincidences, has nothing on this book. Okay? In fact, the number of sheer coincidences in Philemon is astounding. I, I just want you to think about this. Paul is a prisoner sent from Jerusalem. He's been there a couple of years. He's under house arrest in a city of a million. He's converted Philemon 10 years previously, who's in a backwash called Colossae. Has a slave who runs away, travels 1,200 miles to Rome like a needle in a haystack, and who is the one guy he runs into? Paul. And Paul converts Philemon. And Paul wants... To make it clear, and I want you to, I want, we, we need to understand this, that God, whatever your conflict is, Four Oaks, whatever family, personal, relational, God is right in the middle of that. God is sovereignly orchestrating and working through that conflict, whatever it is, and for whatever reason that you've gotten there. Okay, look at, look at, look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother. Because Paul, Paul did everything he could not to be thrown into prison. Remember this? He, he appealed, and we studied that in the book of Acts. But he just reminds us, I, I'm here because of Jesus. I'm in prison because Jesus wants me to be. Now look at verse 15. Was it wrong that Onesimus ran away? Was it wrong that Onesimus rebelled in the way that he did? But look at verse 15, and Paul gives us a glimpse. He said, for this perhaps is why he, meaning Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
Paul said it's all part of God's providence. If you have difficulty seeing the hand of God in the midst of your conflict, take solace, for folks. Take solace. God is right in the middle of it. God is working. God is using. God is designing. God is teaching. Parents, let me ask you a question. When your, parent, when your child comes home from, from school and there is a conflict, a conflict with a teacher or another child or something, what is your instinct as a parent? What is your instinct as a parent? Is your instinct to, to protect them, to shield them, to explain why it's not their fault? Or, or, do you help them to see God's hand in the conflict? Do you help them to, to see how God is working? Let me ask you the same thing, parents. Do you help your child see their heart in the conflict? Do you help them see what God might be teaching them? Because at the heart of every conflict, parents, is an opportunity an opportunity to pop the hood up on the heart, and this is for all of us in our conflicts, and to say, what is this conflict really about? What is the heart of this struggle? Is this really about so-and-so said this and -and so-and-so said that, or is there something more profound here that God wants to do? James reminds us what's at the heart of conflict, James 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Because three weeks ago, a month ago, Susan and I were traveling, and I had a spectacular failure as a peacemaker. I know that's hard to believe, okay? But we were getting ready to check into the hotel. We were going to a conference, and... I was all excited. We had our bags, and we got in there early and plenty of time for the first meeting and all that sort of stuff. And then around the corner comes this entourage, this horde, okay, some marketing scheme group that was having a conference there or something. And there was like 60 of these people. And they were kind of herded right in front of us, and I found myself at the back of the line, okay? And so the, the clearly... The, the manager or the, whoever saw that I was not having a happy moment and came and asked me what, I, what he could do for me. And so I told him it would be great for me to be able to check in ahead of this whole entourage that had just gotten in front of me. And, and what proceeded to happen there at that point, okay? Let's just put it this way. I had to go back later and apologize to this poor man, okay? Because peacemaking at that point was not a priority for me. And as I thought about it, it was so easy to think about that conflict as like, I can't believe the, you know, all this and that and the other. But what was at the root of it for me? What was at the root of it? I really wanted to go first. <laughs> I really wanted to not be inconvenienced. I really wanted to do things my way on my time and my Schedule. You see, conflict became an opportunity to look in my heart and say, what in the world is going on? Folks, one of the, I, I, I'm convinced 
the place that God would have us begin today. As you're thinking about his word, you're thinking about the sermon, you're thinking about situations in your life where there might be conflict or a lack of peace or how was how God calling me to peacemaker, I, I'm totally convinced the first thing that God would have us do as his people is a spiritual diagnostics 101. God, what is this conflict really revealing about myself? What are our, what, what's my unmet desire? Is it selfish ambition? Is it wanting to be first? Is it wanting to put someone down? Is it wanting to look good? Has my pride been injured? Because I think a lot of the situations, a lot of things that keep us from being a peacemaker have less to do about what's going on out there and more about what's going on right here. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he calls us to the table, he says a man ought to what? Examine himself and not to eat or drink in an unworthy manner. He's in fact talking about precisely this issue of peacemaking in the church in Corinth. And people were fighting and people were dividing and it had become just part and parcel of their package. They had lost an urgency and a hope about resolving their things in this life. And and Paul's like, don't come to the table and pretend. Do your business with the Lord. Folks, I want to call us this morning as we prepare to come to the table to really examine our hearts. Where is God calling us to be a peacemaker? Where is God calling us to confess our own part in not keeping the peace? And remember this, the reason that we can move towards others is because Christ first made the move towards us. Jesus Christ made peace with us through his blood on the cross. And because of that new identity we now have, we can be, by his grace, people who seek peace with each other. First with him in our hearts, and then with one another in our relationships.